The convergence of punk with reggae and ska in the late 70s and early 80s resulted in some significant musical developments, leading some punk and post-punk bands in England to experiment with the sound of reggae and dub in particular. Most of the key two-tone bands played covers of 60s ska songs, The Clash played reggae covers and collaborated with Lee Perry and Mikey Dredd, The Slits worked with reggae producer Dennis Bovell, who invented Lover's Rock, and the Ruts recorded the reggae song Jaw War, releasing it on UK reggae band Misty and Roots record label. Reggae was natural for punks to mine as inspirational fuel, just as earlier rock and roll eras adopted ideas and energy from blues and R&B. Many black musicians embraced the rebel sounds of reggae as well, and it would inspire hip-hop in the 1980s. And chances are quite a few English punks had more than a few scratchy Trojan 45s in their record collections and a love of reggae in their blood. Hi, I'm Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the first episode of Punky Reggae Party, a special audio documentary series of the Skaboom podcast that focuses on the historical origins and impact of reggae on popular music that will explore the phenomena of punk and post-punk bands adopting the sounds of reggae. According to an article in the Alternative Press earlier this year, three crucial things happened that helped consummate the marriage of punk and reggae. First, No punk band used reggae more than The Clash, beginning with their 1977 debut album's punky cover of Junior Mervyn's Police and Thieves. Bassist Paul Simonon grew up in a heavily Jamaican neighborhood, learning his instrument by practicing to reggae records, and lead guitarist Mick Jones' arrangements brought upstroke guitars and dub dynamics to the band's sounds. Listen to Simonon describe how he was introduced to reggae in an interview from the noisy British Masters series in 2018. No, I, I guess the environments I've grown up in, it's sort of, that seemed quite an important element. I grew up in, in the South London area of Brixton with the families, the, the sons and daughters of the Windrush. And I noticed all the characters on the street corners. But then also that evolved much many years later into sort of the, the skinhead thing where sort of style was quite important, even though it's sort of minimistic, because he wasn't flamboyant and such. But then I guess the flamboyancy came about with a two-tone suit. Then in July 1977, Johnny Lydon of the Sex Pistols went on Capitol Radio to spin records from his personal collection and where he announced he'd grown up with reggae, including Augustus Pablo's crucial dub plate, King Tubby Meets the Rockers Uptown, Peter Tosh's ganja anthem, Legalize It, Culture's I'm Not Ashamed. And then he spoke movingly about Dr. Alimentado's track, Born for a Purpose, that sealed the bond between punks and Rastas. (laughs) 
This is it. Born for a purpose. Dr. Alimentado, right? Now, this record, just after I got my brains kicked out, I went home and I played it. And, like, there's a verse in it where it's like, if you have no reason for living, don't determine my life. Because the same thing happened to him. He got run over because he was a dread. Very true. If you feel like you have no reason for living, don't And then Bob Marley coined the punky reggae party moniker for a song that name checks the damned, the clash, and the jam. And then when he sings about the similarities between punk struggles to the Rastas, rejected by society, treated with impunity, protected by my dignity, I search for reality. Marley acknowledging the punk scene was all that most new punk and post-punk bands needed to join the party. In this soundbite from an interview, Marley explains the punk and reggae connection. You know, in a lot of newspapers lately, they, they have been sort of making a certain connection between reggae music and new wave of punk. Do you see any connection between the two, except for the fact that they both started or they had the same space in England? I don't see no connection with it in a sense of that big connection. You know, it's just like the offspring reggae in a sense. Because his reggae influenced them. But even the white man have a right to say, to know that Ida Slassy is God and defend him. You know? So as long as them not defend Rasta, it don't make sense until they defend Rasta. Because although it, it can make sense in a, a lower level of us, everyday thinking. Like how they are rebellious in England, because England maybe they want them you to be liars and doctors and big, you know, the big political thing. But them change and becomes like just punk. So it kind of rock the, the English monarchy. Why do you hurt in them English monarchy? In the late 70s, singer and guitarist Green Gartside was a squat-based intellectual who quoted philosophers and whose band's name was an homage to, or maybe a corruption of, the title of a book by the Italian Marxist political theorist Antonio Gramsci, who advanced a theory in which the working class would prosper socially, not just through economic methods, but through originating its own culture of ideas. This theory appeared in his volumes of political writing, which Green Guardside shortened to Scritty Politi. Early Scritty Politi sounds like scratchy, fractured DIY noise on record. Have a listen to the band's first single, Skank Block Bologna, released in 1978.
Skank Block Bologna was played by John Peel, and the band signed to Rough Trade in 1979. They released two EPs in 1979 and began planning their debut album, but the recording had to be delayed when Gartside collapsed with a panic attack caused by his chronic stage fright and his unhealthy lifestyle. He then returned home to South Wales to convalesce for nine months, during which time he reconsidered the band's direction and style. He had been listening increasingly to American funk and disco, such as Chic, The Jacksons, and Aretha Franklin, and became inspired by the idea of creating pop music that retained punk's principles. At this point, Gartside abandoned their post-punk take on rock and a number of the band members for reggae, a genre he had heard on the London pirate radio station Dread Broadcasting Corporation. In 1981, Gartside wrote The Sweetest Girl, emphasis on the quotation marks around Sweetest Girl, as a lilting reggae ballad, which he originally intended to be recorded as a duet by Gregory Isaacs backed by Kraftwerk. Yes, that's true. Gartside told Mojo Magazine in 2011, I got a positive response from Gregory, but I went to see Tito Puente with Kraftwerk in New York, and they told me they didn't like reggae. So I ended up doing it myself. If you've never heard the song, it begins with a filtered Lindrum hi-hat that hisses away throughout the whole song. Then the bubble of lilting reggae keyboards arrived, played by soft machine founder Robert Wyatt, who, according to Gartside, brought the famous English actress Julie Christie with him to the studio. Green recalled to Mojo Magazine, Robert and his wife thought that she and I might make a match, but I was too frightened to talk to her. Wyatt's piano skanks through a chord progression which sounds like a distillation of a million pop songs. Two chords in the verse, four chords in the chorus. The reggae bass is the biggest clue to the band's North London punk heritage, sounding like a slowed-down jaw wobble on public image. A droning, off-kilter organ adds a dollop of 60s surrealism, a link to Wyatt's music in the soft machine.
Sounds amazing, but what's the song about? That remains a bit of a mystery. At first, it appears to be a tribute to a sweet couple before Gartside goes off on a subversive tangent and sings one of pop music's most unusual couplets. Politics is pride too, vagaries of science. She left because she understood the value of defiance. One theory offered to explain the real meaning of the song may be timing. It was written in 1981 at the height of Margaret Thatcher's conservative government in England. And so there is some weight to the idea that Maggie herself is the deluding, idealized, sweetest girl of the title, convincing many that she was something she was not. Gartside, who just a few months earlier had been a Marxist squatter intellectual, may have decided to hide his criticism in a subtle puzzle of a song, hence the couplet, When the Government Falls, I Wish I Could Tell. That the song still sounds great today and probably still influences many is a testimony to Gartside's songcraft, but also ensures that his words continue to provoke. Released on the Rough Trade label in 1981, Sweetest Girl became Scritti Politi's first song to chart, peaking at number 64 on the UK music chart 
and was cited by the New York Times as one of the 10 best singles of 1981. Scritti Politi would go on to fully embrace pop with their Cupid and Psyche 85 album, released in 1985. Their release continued Gartside's embrace of commercial pop music and state-of-the-art studio production, while its lyrics reflect his preoccupation with issues of language and politics. It remains the band's most successful album, reaching number five in the UK, where it was certified gold. The album contained five singles, three of which were top 20 hits in the UK. The single Perfect Way became a surprise hit here in the US, reaching number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100. That notoriety likely led Madness to revisit The Sweetest Girl for their 1985 album Mad Not Mad. Released as a single the following year, it spent six weeks in the British charts, peaking at number 35, proving yet again that the British public love a catchy pop reggae song. you've enjoyed this episode of Punky Reggae Party. My book, Ska Boom, is available from DeWolf Publishing at DeWolf.com, as well as on Amazon. Thanks for listening, and take care.